This is episode 462 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. We had before us an incredible if-then promise from God's Word that if we do the if part, the requirements, God will accomplish the thens, the blessings that only He can do. And the verse before us is 2 Chronicles 7.14, where God promises to forgive our national sin and heal our troubled land. There are four conditional requirements in the passage and three promises. The first requirement is for God's people to humble themselves. What does that mean? How is that done? Are there some steps we can use to learn how to humble ourselves? And the answer is yes. In this message, we will discover 10 steps to help each of us meet the first of God's great requirements for national repentance, and that is for God's people to humble themselves. So join with us today as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Last week, we talked about a great awakening and the need for that. And I shared with you some of the great awakenings that have happened in the past, even during turbulent times, even during the Civil War times. Um, But there are certain if-then propositions which are vitally important for great awakenings and revivals to take place. As a matter of fact, a lot of Scripture is an if-then proposition. Your salvation is an if-then proposition. If we go to the end of the Roman road, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. If you don't do the first, the second doesn't happen. If you trust the Lord with all your heart, and if you don't lean on your own understanding, and if in all your ways acknowledge him, then he will direct your paths. And so the if-then proposition that we've taken out of context that I shared with you last week so many times and, and just thrown it up there as something we can haphazardly do is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14, a verse that we all know, but it is not a haphazard proposition. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of very important things that have to happen first. Pretty much the people that are going to pray and ask the Lord to heal their national sin or forgive their national sin and heal their land have gone through something that would bring them a personal revival. And if enough people did, did that, it would lead to some sort of great awakening. To define our terms, last week we spoke about the difference between revival and spiritual awakening. A spiritual awakening is defined as a socially transforming spiritual movement. There are socially transforming spiritual movements that are alive in our nation today. But the spirit is not God. It's a demonic spirit. And so what we have to do is have some sort of transformation that takes place in us that bleeds out from just our personal relationship with Christ into our social gatherings and our families and what we do on social media and how it impacts culture for a great awakening to take place. But that can only happen if a revival begins first in us individually. Can't have some sort of great awakening that that touches a ton of people until you have a revival that begins with just one. And that one person is me and you. We're only responsible for ourselves. A revival is a spiritual rebirth, which transforms a person. And if more persons get involved in a church setting, it transforms a church or a community into the likeness of what it says in the New Testament Christianity is all about. We've been talking about that for over a year. 
about what it means to be in the kingdom and what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and what true New Testament Christian Christianity is all about. When there's enough of this revival takes place, when it begins to transform a nation, that's when it's called a great awakening. The revival focuses on your personal relationship with the Lord, but the Great awakening is when a bunch of those people who are sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ begin to let their light shine in darknesses beyond their little homes, and then things begin to change. But again, there are if-then promises that have to be met, but they don't have to be met for by everyone. Here's the encouraging part. You've got 340 million people in the United States. And we have a nation that has forsaken God. Yes, there are pockets of churches around, of faithful believers, part of the remnants. But many of the people who claim to have allegiance to the church don't even believe in stuff that the New Testament talks about. You know, the church is divided into all these factions and camps, and you have some people over here that say, you know, gay marriage is ordained by God, and it's okay for a woman to kill her unborn baby, and on and on and on and on, and they still all fall under what our culture calls the great umbrella of the church. We can count those people with the lost people. You know, we don't expect of 340 million people, we don't expect all of those people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and bring some sort of national repentance. But there has to be a segment of those, and nobody knows how big that is. Nobody knows when enough people get together and confess their sins and humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways that God chooses to turn around and and bless a nation again. There's some sort of remnant in there that when it becomes large enough or fervent enough that the collateral blessing from that remnant blesses the entire nation, just as the opposite is true. If you have a nation that is kind of apathetic about everything and have a core group of people that want to do nothing but defame God's name, it doesn't take a lot of those people to have the collateral curses of God because of them affect the entire nation. Make sense? 1973, our nation legalized abortion. We don't do anything about it. 2015, our nation took homosexuality and raised it to a civil right. We don't do anything about it. We're right now afraid to even say, um, I-, I like cops. You know, if you say, I like cops, you lose your job. If you say something as crazy and as offensive as all lives matter are better than that, from a Christian standpoint, all souls matter which is biblical, then for some reason you're a racist. And it, it's the direction we're heading right now. So what we have to do is we have to begin meeting these if-then propositions to have the kind of prayers that will literally have God do things that are incredible in our nation. And all this is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Remember the verse? Really simple. If it is a conditional phrase. If, not everybody, but just my people, just just those people who are under my covenant, those people who belong to me. But even then, we're not talking about all of Christianity. If my people includes us like it included them back then, we're talking about not the carnal Christian or the apathetic Christian or the lukewarm Christian. We're talking about those people who are identified by his name. 
that manifests his name and his character and everything there that is about him. It's the, the funnel now is getting smaller. And we don't know how small or large that funnel is. We know that we're only responsible for ourselves to have personal revival. And the more people that have personal revival, it begins to change a church. And a church begins to change a community. And a community, a city, and a state, and a nation, and a world. That's how awakenings happen. If my people who are called by my name, and we have a tendency when we quote this verse to just run through these like they're nothing, will humble themselves. That's all we're going to talk about today. Do you realize how hard this is? To humble yourself? I don't even know what that means. To humble myself, okay, Lord, uh, I'm humble. Uh, I'm the most humble person I know. Uh, I'm humble. That doesn't, how do you do that? To humble yourself and pray. What, just any kind of prayer, like an arrow prayer? Bless somebody and just shoot it in nowhere? What kind of prayer is it talking about here? And what does it mean to seek his face? We live in a culture right now that we want to seek his hand. Largest church in America right now, um, Joel Osteen's church, is all about seeking his hand. God wants to bless you. You want the favor of God. You don't have to wait in the line at the restaurants. It's really in his book, by the way. You don't have to wait in the line at the restaurants if you have the favor of God. God will move you to the front of the line so that you'll get served before all those other people who have been waiting longer get served because that's exactly why Christ died, Right? What does it mean to seek his face? Now, here's the hard part. This is sanctification that we spent months talking about and turn from their wicked ways. Not wicked that we think's wicked, but wicked that he thinks is wicked. We have a tendency of living in the gray area, in the lukewarm. That's not so bad. I'm okay with that. But when we take out the mind of Christ and let his word shine on our life, then we find out the wicked things are from his perspective, even though we may find they're okay. When all that happens, then, then, if, then, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their singular sin. It's the all-encompassing sin, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. And I will, what we need so desperately, I will heal their land. I will turn it into a place of blessing where my name is honored, where we're excited about having our kids raised there, and we feel comfortable, and we trust other people, and trust the institutions, and trust the government, and trust the church. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. We take this passage out, and we just kind of quote it like a mantra. And we fail to understand the context. I shared this with you last week. I just want you to look at the two verses prior to that, beginning in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, Man, I'm excited about what you've done, Solomon. You built this temple for me. That's what the other chapters, first six chapters, are talking about. You provide the furnishings. You've, uh, we've moved the ark in there. You have done all these sacrifices. You've made this big, long national prayer, which is great. It says, the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I, implied, have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, period. Good news. Good news. Thank you, Lord. That's fantastic that we have built this place for you and you have honored what we've done and you've chosen this place to be a place where we can bring sacrifices to you in the Old Testament economy before the temple was destroyed. That's wonderful. 
God, I mean, we're on great relationships here now, Lord. We've given you an offering. We've blessed you. You've received our blessing. I mean, it's incredible. As a matter of fact, in a couple chapters prior to this, God's presence shows up so much that the Levites and priests can't even minister before the Lord anymore. They're on their faces, overwhelmed by just the presence of God. This should be a really positive thing. But verse 13 gets really negative. God, we're your people, and we have done this for you. Yeah, but I know your hearts. I know what's going to happen. I know that you're not really totally committed. I know that this was kind of an exciting thing for you, like going to carowinds. But the fact is that you're, you're, you're not totally belong to me, and so therefore I know what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to chastise you. I'm going to have to punish you. I'm going to have to bring terrible things against you. I may have to collapse your economy. I may have to give you a virus. I may have to make you all stay inside. I may be rioting to your cities. I may have the news media turn against you. I may have the people in Washington just lie to your face. I may do all of this to you for one reason and one reason only, to bring you back to me. Look what he says in verse 13. Second Chronicles 7.14 is not the beginning of a sentence. It follows a comma. It's the continuation of a single thought. And here's verse 13. When I shut up heaven and there's no rain. Now that just didn't happen to you. Satan didn't make your crop fails and your animals die. I did that to you. I shut up heaven and there is no rain. Or implied, I command the locust to devour the land. Or I send pestilence among not everybody, my people. Lord, we just built you this temple. You're pleased with it. You said that, you know, that you've never chosen a place. Now you've chosen Jerusalem, and now you've chosen this temple. And, and, and then we're just so excited about that. We just had this big worship service, and everybody was, was praying, and, and we just, you know, slaughtered 22,000 bulls on your altar. Imagine what that was like. Yeah, but when I bring judgment on my people, I destroy their crops, and what's left, I bring the locust in to absolutely devour them, to do to you pretty much what I did to Egypt, and then I'm going to send a pestilence in among my people. When that happens, here is what you are to do, because I've got your attention. What he's saying, I've got your attention. Has the Lord got your attention yet about what's happening in our nation? That's verse 13. That's the context. And verse 14 says, when all that happens, here how you, here's how you move beyond that. If my people, who I've just sent a pestilence among, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, meaning there are wicked ways going on, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and I will bring the blight off their land. It's an if-then proposition. If-then. There are four if conditions and there are three promises. Only way it's going to get turned around. The four if conditions. Humble themselves. Ugh. Books written on this. Pray. More books written on this. Seek my face. 
Don't even know what that means today because we're too busy giving our request to the Lord and, and just seeking his hand and turning from their wicked ways. Well, that affects every aspect of your life. That affects your relationship with your wife and your children. That affects the way that you handle your money. That affects what you do online. That affects how you use your free time. That, expects, that affects what you watch on television or video games that you play or what you listen to or what books you read or the people that you hang around, the relationships that you have, where you work. All of that is affected by turn from uh, your wicked ways. And none of us want to do that. None of us even want to hear about that because we're too busy building our own kingdoms in this world. If you do that, I will do three things for you. I will hear from heaven. And we know in the New Testament, John talks about the fact that if we ask according to God's will that he hears us, and we know if he hears us, then he will give us what we ask. So this is a very important part, to have God hear your prayers, and he will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a simple proposition. But the requirements are impossible to do in the flesh impossible. You can sum it all together up and talk about, well, that just simply means to abide. You tried doing that lately? Tried resting in the Lord? Not just when things are coming your way wrong or bad. Oh, my God, I've got a really tough situation right now and just lost my job. Well, I'm just going to trust Jesus. But did you trust Jesus before you lost your job? Do you trust Jesus just in every area of your life? Or are we just holding on to how things used to be, how we want them to be, rather than entering into this great adventure with him? Humbling yourself. If my people who are called by name will humble themselves, this is not something God does for you. There are some things he does do. He does regeneration. He does conversion. He chose you and him before the foundation of the world. But sanctification is all on you. You have the power now to live a godly life in him, but he expects you to do that. The humbling yourself is something that you do. It's something that I do. It's a choice that we make. That's why it says humble themselves. It's not I will humble them because God has many examples in his Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where he humbled a king or he humbled a nation and he brought people low to the point that they had nowhere to look up but to him. That's exactly what he did to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Do you remember? Sent him out in a field like a wild animal for seven seasons, humbling him until he came to himself and looked up and then God restored his kingdom. Same thing here. In order for us to receive God's blessing, it is our responsibility to humble ourselves. A couple examples. In Exodus 10.3, talks about Pharaoh refused to humble himself before God. And so therefore, more judgments came. Ammon did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh did. And Manasseh was probably the worst, most evil king that existed. But in the end of his life, he humbled himself and God postponed impending judgment. But his son didn't even bother doing that. Zedekiah did not humble himself before Jeremiah. Daniel was praised by the fact that he set his heart to understand the things of God, and Daniel humbled himself before God. We are commanded in James 4.10 to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and if we do that, he will lift us up. 1 Peter 5.6 says we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us on his timetable. In due time, it's up to him. So how do we do this? How do you humble yourself? 
I mean, it's not something that you wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm humble. I'm humble right now, Karen. I'm humble. Do I seem humble? I'm more humble than you. I mean, how do you do that? I'm going to give you 10 practical things at the end of this message so that we can put some application of this. But what does it even mean to humble yourself? How is it done? And most important, why does it need to be done? Why is it so important? Well, let me share with you one other conditional phrase about prayer, and that's in James 5.16. Watch this. Here's what it says. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you will be healed. Okay. Confess my trespasses and pray for one another. They're not really sure what that prayer is like. Is that just a hey, I'll pray for you, brother. Is that a God is great, God is good, and now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer? Is that some sort of passionate prayer? It doesn't say in this part of the verse. It just says pray for each other, and the promise is that, that we'll be healed. We'll be made whole again. But is it for everybody? And then you look at the rest of this. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man has the kind of power to move God or get God's attention. Not just any prayer, and it's not just any man. The effective, fervent prayer of a callous, lukewarm, apathetic man avails much? No, it's probably not worth much at all. The lackluster, I don't really care because I'm tired and I'm sleepy and there's a football game on prayer, of just a normal, everyday, Joe Blow kind of Christian avails much. Now, this is, this is a conditional promise. The fervent, fervent prayer of a man committed to him, a man that has humbled himself, has confessed his sins, has seek God's face, has turned from his wicked ways, a righteous man has power. It avails much to the point prior to that, of people getting healed and restored and changed. If we want to have that power in prayer, there's some work we have to do to meet these conditions. So it says I'm to humble myself, which raises the question, what, is, what does that mean and, and what, is, what is humility? What, what does the word humble mean? I want you to watch this. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, the word translated humble means to subdue with the basic sense of being lowly and meek. It's like someone who was conquered in our culture. Lowly and meek. All right, so what does lowly and meek mean? Because those are New Testament words. I remember reading those in the New Testament. 2 Chronicles 7.14 talks about humble themselves, and we find a definition of that Hebrew word deals with concepts in the New Testament about being lowly and meek. Nobody wants to be lowly and meek. A lowly and meek guy in our culture is a wimp. He's a loser. 
I mean, he's a guy that, that can't even raise his head, won't even look you in the eye when you're having a conversation with him. He's going to amount to nothing. He's weak. He's not committed to anything. He's ashamed and keeps his head down. He's a total pushover. He's not the guy you want on your team. He's not the guy that you want to be in a foxhole with. You definitely want, don't want to go into business with this guy. That's, that's not who it is. You don't want your dad to be like this because when you get in trouble, and can you help me out, dad? No, I really can't. I'm just, I'm afraid of confrontation. And, and that's, that's how we interpret this phrase. Nobody wants to be lowly and nobody wants to be meek because we're Americans, we're entrepreneurs. There's, there's no ceiling to what we can do. Our heroes are not weak and lowly people. Our heroes are, when I was growing up, is, you know, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and Rambo and all those kind of stuff. Mess with me, I mess back. And, you know, the movies that are most popular at least during my lifetime, always have to do with some injustice happening to some man minding his own business. So he takes matters into his own hand and he wipes out all the bad guys and he becomes the death wish, Charles Bronson, vigilante kind of hero. You want to watch a movie about a person that can't even make a decision? Hey, what do you want to do today? I don't know. I just can't. I don't know. I just, I don't know. Well, I need some leadership here. I, I know I don't have any leadership. I don't know what to do. It's click. I'm done. It just irritates us, especially as men, because we don't, we don't view it that way. So when we're looking at these phrases like humble ourselves, becoming lowly and meek, we, we see these characteristics that we have adopted, not biblically, but culturally, and they just fly in our face. They're anathema to us. I don't want to be like that. But in Scripture... The only description of Jesus was the fact that he was lowly and meek and humble. We don't know what he weighed. We don't know how tall he was. We don't know anything else about him. But we do know this. Watch this. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay. A yoke. We have two oxen here. And so he's on one side, I'm on another. It's his yoke. I'm learning from him. I'm walking with him. I'm learning to walk his pace. We're walking in cadence together. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, praus, this is the word translated meek, and lowly, which is translated humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So what kind of guy are you, Jesus? Well, I am gentle, I'm meek, and I am lowly. So how do we interpret that when we look at the Jesus movies? Oh, he has this pained look on his face. Do you remember the Jesus of Nazareth one that came out about 25 years ago, the 3D uh, VHS set? You know, it was Jesus with crooked teeth. Do you remember that? All the other ones are Jesus with perfect teeth. This was Jesus with per- crooked teeth. And every time he was in trouble, he had these sad eyes, and he always had this look on his face like he didn't know what was going on, and, and oh, just so hard. It's just so hard, because that's how we interpret gentle and lowly. But that's not what it means at all. As a matter of fact, I was doing some word study on the word praus, And of course, we've always heard that meek really means strength under control, but we have no idea what that means until we look at the war horse. This is a Greek word study on the word praus. Let me just read this to you. It'll change your whole concept of what this word means. Meekness is something most of us have trouble with. 
especially those of the male gender. Part of it is society and a cultural issue. Meekness is not something that was ever taught in Western civilization, but I think there's another reason men have so much trouble with being meek. We simply are not wired that way. Men throughout history have had to be somewhat aggressive and or assertive to survive. Extremely passive men do not make very good providers, protectors, or leaders. Since God did the wiring, it'd be a good idea for us to take a look at exactly what the word means since this is an attribute of Christ and something we're commanded to be. The Greek word translated praus was borrowed from the military and relates to horse training from the Greek culture way back when. This is from the word study. The Greek army would find the wildest horses in the mountains and bring them to be broken. After months of training, they sorted the horses into categories. Some were discarded, some were broken and made useful for bearing burdens, and some were useful for ordinary duties, and the fewest of all graduated as war horses, the kind of horses that men would ride into battle, the kind of horses that would just trample over the enemy, the kind of horses that were fearless as long as their rider was on them, running against all sorts of weaponry coming against it. When a horse passed the conditioning requirement for a war horse, its state was described as praus. It was called meek. When a horse became a war horse, it was called a meek horse. You and I, when we think of a meek horse, we think about a horse that won't even leave the barn. A horse that has this big dip in its back. You know, a horse that won't even ride. And I don't want to ride a meek horse. I need a, I need a stallion. I need a horse that's fearless. In the Greek culture, when this word was first coined, that's exactly the description of a meek praus horse. The war horse had a power under authority. It had strength under control. A war horse never ceased to be determined, strong, and passionate. However... Now here's the key part. However, everything that horse was, its power and its might and what made it so useful in the hands of a soldier, everything that war horse was, it learned to bring its nature under discipline and bring its nature under control. The horse gave up being wild, unruly, out of control, and rebellious. A war horse learned to bring that nature under control. It would now respond to the slightest touch of the rider, stand in the face of cannon fire, thunder in the battle, and stop at a whisper. It was now meek. Get the difference? It's a powerful, proud word to be. In Jesus' time, a meek person was the one who was obedient to the will of God, courteous, patient, and slow to anger. Most importantly, a meek person had self-control. There are two people in all of the Bible who are described as meek. Do you know who they are? Number one is Christ, and number two is Moses. Moses and Christ. Pretty good examples, wouldn't you say? When it talks about us humbling ourselves and becoming meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It means that we live our lives in total subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't change our strength and our nature or our temperament. A war horse does not become a donkey. 
A war horse is still a war horse, but he's learned to respond completely and obediently to the slightest touch and whim of his rider. That's what it means to be meek. It's exactly what Christ was. Christ always talked about the fact that I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of my Father. I'm living in obedience to him. Look what it says here in Philippians 2, 5, and 8. Let this mind be in you, which was in also Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm supposed to think like he does. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but, but, big contrast here, what did he do? He made himself of no reputation. The Son of God decided to lower himself as far as he possibly can to humble himself to become one of us. How did he... How did he bring himself to have no reputation? He took on the form of a bondservant, a voluntary slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. And the key element of humbling himself is becoming obedient, not to the point of discomfort, but to the point of death, even the horrific death on the cross. This is Christ's meekness. And he says, the mind that was in Christ to submit himself, all that he is, unto the authority of the Lord, uh, the authority of God, his Father, and humble himself and be obedient is the same thing you and I need to do to be the kind of war horses he's called us to be. So what do we do? How do we humble ourselves in daily lives? Let me tell you a failure of modern preaching today. Um... Spurgeon's preaching wasn't exactly like this, but we have a tendency of preaching in generalities. Here's what we need to do, and it brings up that yes, but how question. Uh, Okay, yes, I agree, but how? Lay yourself down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Got that, yes, but how? But how? And all these global statements like this one, humbling yourself, got it. But how? Give me, give me some practical examples so I can go home and I can begin the process of humbling myself with my very family. All right, let me just give you 10. You may come up with more of these. Number one, humble yourselves, confess your sins to God. And you need to do this regularly, habitually. We talked again about spiritual breathing when we talked about the Holy Spirit. That when you find your, the Holy Spirit grieve, when you find yourself falling out of fellowship with the Lord, you stop right then and you confess those sins to God and you exhale your confession to him and then breathe in the renewness of his spirit where he restores that relationship with you. Do you remember? I mean, all the stuff that's coming to a crescendo now is stuff we've been talking about for years I just had no idea everything would happen as quickly as it is. Confess your sins to God. Well, I don't want to confess my sins to God because I don't really think I was wrong in that situation. It's really they were wrong and I'm not really wrong. And, you know, and I don't have to be the one that forgives. They need to forgive. And It's not humbling yourself. Humbling yourself is you doing the confession. Number two, acknowledge those sins to others. Ah, oh, Yeah. Because humility towards God is often best manifested in humility towards others. 
Man, you want to commit a sin and not do that sin anymore? Confess that sin to somebody else. Hey, I want you to know that I, uh, I did this or I struggle with this or I'm like this and I've asked the Lord to forgive me, but I want you to know. I want somebody else to know to help me keep accountable, to pray for me because this, I'm, I'm humbling myself to the point of being able to do that. It's what it says here in James 5.16, remember? Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Don't condemn them. Because if somebody comes up to you and confesses their sins to you, before you get all, oh, I just can't believe that. And you ain't confessing your sins to nobody else. And you're probably not going to go, oh, I can beat that. Let me tell you what I did last night. You know, the fact is, is, is we all are in the same boat here. We're all struggling. We're all ashamed and embarrassed about what we do. We're ashamed and embarrassed to confess it to the Lord. We're definitely ashamed and embarrassed to confess it to somebody else. But true humility comes from doing that. I really want to change. And if I really want to change, I've asked God to forgive me, and I'm letting you know so that you can pray for me and keep me accountable. This is a practical way to walk in humility. Number three, submit to authority, both good and bad. Good and bad. Well, I don't have to do that. I disagree with that law. That's an unjust law. Okay. Well, then there are ways within the system for you to change that, but it doesn't really matter whether it's unjust or not. When Peter and Paul made these statements before they were killed by an unjust government, I want you to realize that the government was Nero. It's bad enough with our Congress you know, it was bad enough with a Democratic president. If Obama wins, it'll be really bad, but it ain't as bad as Nero. This is Nero here. And here's what they say. Servants or slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, reverence, and respect. Well, you shouldn't even be a slave, but you are. But not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unreasonably harsh. Doesn't matter how they treat you. Our job is to line our life up with him and to humble ourselves. Should I quit? Getting worse. When you are wronged, take it patiently. Quit complaining about it. Quit trying to gather people to, on your side. You know, we do that. Let, let, me, let me tell you what happened to me. I'm just sharing this with you as a prayer request, but let me tell you what Tim did. You know what I mean? Or let me tell you what Karen did and all that. We're just trying to, to garner support for our pride and arrogance. I want to talk about humbling yourself. When you are wronged, and you will be wronged, you take it patiently. Look what he, look what he says here, 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins. By the way, did he suffer for his sins? No, for your sins and my sins. The just for the unjust. He didn't complain. He didn't bellyache. He didn't, you know, I, I don't mind suffering for Scott's sins, but I'm not suffering for Tammy's sins. You know, he didn't do that. But he did that that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive to the Spirit. Number five. Here's a hard one especially on social media. Oh, I'm going to make a post right now. How many people are going to like it? Please like it. Like, 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 like. Oh, follow me, follow me, follow me. Look at all the followers I have. I must be special. 
Choose to serve others and not yourself. And it's really bad in preacher circles. Um, Unbelievably bad. Watch what Paul says here. To a very carnal church. For we do not preach ourselves. I'm not coming in you telling you how cool I am and giving you all my ideas so that you'll follow me. But we're here, uh, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And how do we view ourselves? As your slaves, as your bondservants, not for your sake, but for Christ's sake. What he did for me, we are doing for you. Number six, how do we go about serving others? Choose to take the lower place. Wow. Choose, choose not to get the raise to let somebody else have it. Choose not to have all the agile. Choose not to sit where you're entitled to sit, but let somebody else who's not entitled to sit there be blessed and and have a moment of of feeling special, and you just sit back in the shadows. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change our self-worth. I'm not clamoring. We're not clamoring for the adoration of someone else. That's what it says in Proverbs 25. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of the great. Why? And then it talks about the fact where it is better that he say to you, hey, come up here, than for you to be put in a lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. I may have shared this with you before. When we lived in Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, bought our first house. Krista was born. We had this neighbor behind us about the age of Krista. Didn't even like her playing with him. It was a guy. They were on a corner lot, so his backyard lined up right with ours, and, and his byline was, uh, me great, huh? Remember that? Every, you know, he'd do something, look at, me great, huh? Me great, huh? And we look at him and go, how sad. He doesn't get the affirmation that he needs at home, so he wants it from everybody else, but me great, huh? Many of us live our lives that way. And I am great, and I am special, and I'm going to lord that right over you, and I'm going to talk about how much better I am than you, and there's no way. I'm going to choose the lower place and let other people think you're better than me or more important than me or make more money than I do or have more influence than I do. No way that's going to happen. Then humility and humbling yourself is gone. It's not the attitude Christ took. In the very last meal he shared with his disciples, he got on his knees in front of them and washed their feet, including Judas, knowing Judas would betray him. Number seven, this is a hard one. Choose to assume the best of another and speak well of each other always. Rumor comes, hey, um, Frank said this. Really? You know, it doesn't seem like Frank, and I just was with Frank yesterday, and, and, and he seemed opposite of that, and I can't believe that he said that, so I'm going to automatically assume the worst about Frank. Because we have this desire to put other people down and feed on negativity. I do. It's just part of my fallen nature. But the scripture says that we're to have all those attributes and characteristics taken away from us and be tenderhearted towards each other and assume the best about each other, especially other believers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 through 32. Let all bitterness, all wrath and anger and clamor all evil speaking to be put away from you. 
to be banished from you, to be an anathema to you with all malice. So what am I supposed to do? And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Number eight, develop a grateful heart. I was on the, I was listening to the radio and James Dobbs, now he wasn't, it's not James Dobbs anymore, but Focus on the Family had this lady on. And, you know, they always have somebody talking about a book they just wrote. And she was telling her story about not being able to have kids. And she was able to have kids after so many years after they adopted some and how God got into this 10 year time and all that. And, and she, and, and the guy said, well, how did you get through all that? And she says, you know what? I just learned to be grateful about everything. I would go outside at night. I would look up at the stars and just be thankful for the Lord. I get in a car and turn my radio off and just drive down the road and see houses and see the mountains and see the skies and the clouds and just be thankful for everything, even thankful for the tough times that she went through because God is doing something in her life. I mean, it really moved me. And it's exactly what it's talking about here. Develop a grateful heart. In everything, give thanks. Everything, good and bad, painful and pleasure, everything. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, who we are in for you. What is God's will for my life? I don't know. God, tell me what your will is, which means who we're going to marry, where we're going to live, what job we're going to have. Well, how about this one? To give thanks for everything. Give thanks for the fact that you don't even know who you're going to marry. You don't even know where you're going to live. You don't even know what kind of job you're going to have, but God sustains you every single day. Give thanks for everything, for this is the will of of God in Christ Jesus for you. Number nine, be quick to forgive because God was quick to forgive us. You know the passage where Peter comes up and says, Lord, how often uh, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Let me pick a big number here. How about like um, seven times a day? So like every two and a half hours comes up and sins against me every two and lies about me every two and a half hours, steals money from me every two and a half hours. I mean, if I forgive him like seven times in that whole day, is not enough. And Jesus says, no, it's 70 times seven. There's no limit to that. Why? Because God forgave you 70 times seven. And that's where humility comes from. Number 10, last one, receive corrections from others graciously. Do you realize that sometimes God speaks to us in an audible voice? Sometimes he speaks to us through scripture. Sometimes he speaks to us through providential circumstances. Sometimes he speaks to us in in dreams and visions. Sometimes he speaks to us through other people who can see blind spots in your life. I hate, I hate when somebody points out a blind spot in my life because my first reaction is to say, that's not a blind spot, you're blind. Because it hurts, does it not? It bothers us. But you know what? Sometimes God does that. Sometimes people can see things about you that you can't see. It's one of the traits, if you're in a good marriage, it's one of the traits that your spouse can do. Your spouse can see things in you that you can't. I can't tell you the number of times Karen has reminded me as I'm preparing for my teaching ministry, reminded me about my pastoral ministry, which does not come as easily as my teaching ministry hey, you know, you probably need to call so-and-so because their mother just got out of the hospital yesterday. Gosh, yes. I didn't even think about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Know what I mean? Makes us all one. Two Proverbs here. 
He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes off the rails. Or how about this one? Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction, this is how I interpret that Hebrew word, is stupid. Not just stupid, but it's like stupid. Like how dumb can you be? Ten steps. Ten. Let me show you one last thing about humbling yourself, and I'm going to close. Watch what happens here if we choose not to. Watch what happens to God's response to our own actions. James 4.4. Tough passage here. Adulterers and adulteresses. And again, he's not talking necessarily about a man and a woman. He's talking about our relationship with the Lord, forsaking him for the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship here is filio. It's not a... um, a physical kind of love. It's not agape. It's a friendship. If you're a friendship with the world, that is hatred towards God. Well, how did that happen? How did it become hatred towards God? Whoever, therefore, desires to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we choose to be a friend of the world, then we're choosing to make ourselves an enemy of God because the sentence prior to that, he tells us, friendship with the world, hatred towards God. My action brings upon, what my choice brings upon myself the consequences of those actions. But two verses later, it says this, God resists the proud, quoting from the Old Testament, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but the humble get grace. Would you rather have his resistance or grace? Do you know what the word resistance means? It means to set an army in array against or to arrange in battle order. We think of resisting as this, "Mm, no, I don't want to go. No, It's it's like when you've got two armies that are standing to go in the battle and they're in battle formation and are getting ready to engage in a life or death struggle, a war. It's exactly what the word means here in the Greek. God resists the proud and the haughty, but gives grace to the humble. So what do you want to do? What do you want to do? It's two paths before us. And the choice is ours. And this is just condition one of being able to have the kind of prayers or the kind of relationship with the Lord that will pray in such a way that he will see that. And based on your fervency and based on your commitment to him and others like you, he will turn his hand of judgment away from a sinning nation. When I shut up my heavens and there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, first condition, and to follow all those other ones, I will release their land from my judgment. And give us three promises. I will hear those prayers from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. Now listen. 
we live in a rural setting and we're in North Carolina, we're away from major metropolises and in my life it consists of food line and clover, Lowe's in uh, Lake Wiley and occasionally I go to Sam's and Gastonia, that's pretty much it. You know, I've got my friends and my family and church and it's pretty much all we ever do and all the evil stuff that happens out there like in Atlanta last night where they burned down more stuff and rioting, that's way out there. You know, they may have some demonstrations and some tough stuff happen in Gastonia. There's some shootings that take place, and you look at those every day in Gastonia. But that's Gastonia. We're way out here, kind of safe because we chose to be that way. And we have a tendency of thinking that, you know, I don't need to take this stuff seriously because all this stuff in our nation really isn't going to affect me. It is. It is coming. It's really here. And... It's upon us, and we've seen it. We've seen it coming. We see it coming with rapid su- succession, and we need to get ready to be able to be able to have the kind of prayer life that literally gets God's attention, so that when we pray, He hears. Now, He always hears our prayers, but the the imagery is like He. It's like when there's a playground and there's 75 kids out there and they're all screaming and all of a sudden one kid falls down and skins their knee and starts screaming for mama and this mama and you mama's out there immediately know I hear that kid. Everybody else is important but that kid is most important to me. That's the kind of hearing we're talking about. Hears their prayer, forgives their sin and heals their land. We can do this we can do, you can do this yourself. You can experience revival yourself. Your, your whole family can be changed. Life can be changed. Because I think God is giving us a window. And I'm not the only preacher that's preaching this. I promise you that. He's giving us a window to be able to meet these conditions and see if we don't have one final great awakening until the Lord brings everything to a close. Amen? Let me pray. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and I hope you realize the power you have as a believer of Jesus Christ to be one of God's people, to be able to humble yourself, to pray, to seek God's face, to turn from your wicked ways in such a way that those people who don't even know him will be blessed by the collateral blessings of him forgiving our national sin and healing our land. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing with you again next time.